It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November November 4th, 2009. Oh boy. My emotions have run the gamut today. I, in, pre- in preparation for today's program, I've done some serious soul searching. I just, I just want to let you know that it's very important to do that. By the way, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to get you to think biblically. To get you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, if you've detected, based upon what I just said, that I trust God's Word more than I trust other people and their opinions about God, then uh, you have heard correctly. I just want to make sure that you understand that. All right. Um, Soul-searching today. There's a story that I've been tracking down that is going to require me to talk about politics. I will save it for a little bit later in this hour, but it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, I gotta admit, I'm kind of mad. I'm, I'm mad that I have to talk about politics. Uh, you know, I, I, I do glancing blows on the political thing. And, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where the reason I don't like talking about politics is because in, in many ways, um, for sure, I'm not a socialist. And, and at the same time, I am, I, I do not agree with, uh, a lot of the shenanigans going on in the Republican Party. And why do I say that? Cause I used to be the treasurer for the Republican Party or the Republican Central Committee in the congressional 43rd and 44th districts in uh, in California. And th- I got to tell you, after seeing how politics works on the inside, especially watching how the money is is d- does its thing, um I I just got completely jaded by the whole thing and um you know what is it a pox on both of your houses, you know, that this not necessarily the best attitude. Let's just put it that way. So um, you know, I, the problem is when I do a program like this and I'm going to talk about politics, it's, people are, I always get the emails, oh, Roseboro, you're shilling for the Republican Party. No, really, actually, I'm not. <laughs> um, that, that being said, uh, anyway, well, let's talk about the program today. Um, first of all, uh, for our leadoff uh, segment, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. He's apparently back and he says hello. Um, this is odd because uh, if you remember a few months ago, a couple months ago, we had another guy claiming to be Jesus Christ up in in Seattle. He kind of has a lisp and sounds like he's an older gentleman. And, uh, you know, he's still making proclamations on YouTube. But apparently another guy claiming to be Jesus Christ is... Um, making proclamations on YouTube. And so we'll have to play that. And the reason why we play things like that is because, well, Jesus warned us in the last day there would be people claiming to be, well, him. And uh, that being the case, Jesus said ahead of time, don't believe it. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll play some audio here from the guy claiming to be Jesus Christ. Uh, then we've got Peter Rollins. You know what? Listen, um, I've spent quite a bit of time with the emergent group, uh, with the progressive, uh, crowd. And if I hear another one of them tell me how brilliant Peter Rollins is, I am likely to actually break out in hysterical laughter and, uh, not be able to control myself. 
I have determined that Peter Rollins is brilliant in the same way that the emperor has no clothes. Uh, the, 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 the guys who are convincing the emperor, uh, to buy this incredible fabric, uh, are brilliant. You know, <clears throat> I'll make my case later. And then uh, let's see here. Al Mohler, he has uh, written a uh, response to uh, Frankie's. Uh, this is another emergent guy. Frankie's book. Let's see. John R. Frankie. I met him. And in fact, uh, Bob Dewey and I sat through his uh, breakout session on the plurality of truth. And I've just finished his book. Oh, man. What a waste of time. Um, and, uh, Al Mohler, rather than me writing a review, I think Al Mohler has done a fine job. I'm going to be, uh, reading for you Al Mohler's response to, uh, John Franke's book, claiming that, uh, that, uh, there is a plurality of truth. You know what this is really? Um, after reading Franke's book, I'm absolutely convinced that, uh, basically what Franke has put together in this quote, plurality of truth, um, book is, uh, he's come up with a very clever and uh, shiny new veneer to stick on to the on basically old liberalism's concept that uh, all things you know that truth is relative. Uh, rather than saying truth is relative because that gets shot down pretty quick, uh, he's come up with a clever new argument. Well, truth isn't relative; it's just there's a plurality of truth. <clears throat> Remember the statement I've said it before. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Anyway, we'll be reading Al Mohler's piece, and then we're going to steer into politics. And I'm not happy about it. I'm just not happy about it. Um, The uh, religious left, I kid you not, I've been tracking this down through the American Spectator and actually been on the phone today making sure I understand the story correctly. And uh, the religious left is, uh, this this would be the United Church of Christ, the ELCA, the, you know... uh, uh, the religious left is working, basically trying to petition the FCC, calling for, um, uh, well, they're trying to put an end to hate speech on the radio. And, um, boy, I tell you, this is just crazy stuff, and we'll pick this apart. And uh, and funny enough, uh, the, the, the people bankrolling this particular effort, uh, f- uh, the money goes back to, like, George Soros and, and Acorn. I am not making that up. I tweeted out the uh, the complicated arc article today. So if you uh, are following me on Twitter or you're my friend on Facebook, I have a link to the American Spectator uh, piece. I, I won't be reading that on the air, at least not in it. I might pick apart pieces of it. But uh, definitely worth the read. It's uh, crazy stuff that we're looking at there. And then when we get to our sermon review today, uh, Stephen Furtick, uh, Elevation Church, uh, and uh, this is one of the uh, purpose-driven popes of the Carolinas. Uh, this is the North Carolina pope. Uh, he, um, he's he got a, a brand-new sermon series he's been doing on the book of Philippians, and the no- name of his sermon series is The Joy Genome, and the name of the sermon we'll be reviewing today is Joy Jitsu. Can't make this stuff up, so... <laughs> Uh, that's going to be the balance of our program today. So what? Oh, oh wait, you know, hey, you know what though? There's one other story I've got to get to. Al Gore. Um, you know how the other day I, I was talking about uh, the global warming thing, and the reason why I keep bringing it up is because it's like it's hit a religion status in my mind. I am a prophet in this one. In this sense, got a, uh, a story from the Guardian in the UK. Uh, the headline reads: Al Gore's inconvenient truth sequel stresses spiritual argument on the climate. 
I, I'm not, not that's <laughs> and then uh, and then oh sad news for the folks over at um, you know at uh, Rick Warren's camp Reader's Digest has um, said that they're going to part ways with Rick Warren on the whole purpose connection whole purpose driven connection magazine so I mean we got lots of stuff to talk about today probably more than I have time for but I'll, you know me I'll I just keep things short you know how concise I am when I talk <coughs> sorry. Uh, my nose is oh, that's weird it looks like it just got an inch or two longer <sighs> all right so uh, with that we're going to dive into our program proper please uh, it, if you want to make yourself comfortable we we, lo- we if you want to enjoy the the program sit on the couch uh if you want to exercise with well, that we're, we're fine with that if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to fighting for the faith we have no problem with that whatsoever but please, please, please uh, use discretion if you're going to be wearing fuzzy bunny slippers while listening to Fighting for the Faith. It can be enjoyable as long as the weather is is cooler, not warmer. All right. So with that, we're going to uh, dive in. And uh, that means we need our vintage news music from the New York Post. The headline reads, Reader's Digest splits with purpose-driven pastor Rick Warren. Now, why am I passing this one along? Well, I I I have a uh, I have a theory. I think Rick Warren's uh, popularity among American evangelicals is uh, rapidly waning. It's it's uh, it's slipping. I mean, if if we could do you know uh, some polling to find out what his approval rating is, we might discover that it's probably at an all time low. And I have a theory about that. But uh, let me read the story here. This is by Keith Kelly from the. Uh, uh, the New York Post, and uh, it's short little story. It says, Reader's Digest Association, we'll refer to as RDA from now on, is dra- dropping its high-profile joint venture with TV evangelist Rick Warren. TV evangelist? I know. Uh, yes, he got uh, Keith. Listen, uh, Rick Warren is a lot of things, but he's not really a television evangelist. Yes, he's had he's been on television. Uh, he's made the rounds at Fox News and stuff. And uh, you know, been on Hannity's show, and and uh, you know he's and he's been on Larry King Live, but he's not a televangelist. I that, I will come to Rick Warren's defense on that, and say that Keith is incorrect on that little factoid. Uh, let's see here, but uh, due to, uh, so they're joint they're dropping their joint venture with Rick Warren due to a lack of subscriptions uh, to the purpose. Driven Connection magazine. This is what the New York Post has learned. The magazine will cease publication after the Christmas issue due out in mid-November. Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church in California and author of the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, said that he and the RDA will transition the project into a web-only venture over the next few months. Uh, RDA, is, uh, which is operating in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, will cease funding the operation entirely in March of 2010 and turn the project over to Warren's company. Now, what does this tell you? Okay, they're dropping it because it's not making any money. Why is it not making any money? Because Rick Warren, really, his uh, his approval ratings are really in the toilet right now. And uh, yeah, this is not good for the purpose-driven empire that he's trying to build. And the reason why, I'll, t- I'll tell you why I think his approval ratings are are so bad right now. The reason is, is because do you remember back at the beginning of the year? What, what was Rick Warren doing? What was all the hoopla about? 
Rick Warren was invited by President Barack Obama to come and give the inaugural prayer at, you know, so he, you know, that was his thing. And basically the way Rick Warren handled that particular um, event, uh, Rick Warren seems to have this obsession with wanting everybody to like him. And as a result of it, he made everybody mad at him. You see, that's the thing. You can't, you can't make everybody happy with you. You can't please everybody. Uh, you got to be principled, okay? And so what happened is, is that right around the inauguration or shortly thereafter, Rick Warren was on Larry King Live, and he said something that um, was factually untrue. We call those lies. Um, and uh, he basically made the claim that he wasn't lobbying for pushing you know hard for that whole prop eight thing well the problem was is that he had made a video encouraging all of the members of uh, saddleback church to vote uh favorably you know but basically vote against gay marriage vote in favor of the constitutional amendment there in california that would outlaw uh homosexual marriage and uh and the funny thing was that people were able to they were able to dredge up emails that they had received from saddleback showing that he was really not just promoting that video to the members of Saddleback, but that was something that was kind of sent out to like everybody, Um, you know, and, and so he said something factually untrue. Now, what happened is, is that that blew up in his face and I actually covered it at the museum of idolatry. I put the two videos next to each other and just let him play. You know, uh, I had video of Larry King saying, you know, uh, Rick Warren on Larry King, and then video of Rick Warren uh, doing, you know, basically saying the things that he said that he didn't say. And as, and uh, I actually got an email from uh, Rick Warren's publicist trying to explain, you know, spin the story in such a way. And here's what happened Rick Warren disappeared for a while. I am not kidding. He went into uh, kind of, uh, a bunker mode, if you would, just kind of disappeared for a while. Never really, you know, tried. Never really went out in the public to explain things. He canceled some interviews that he had lined up at the time that that thing happened, and he just kind of disappeared for a while. And you know, just and what and the idea is is that this is what politicians do. He, I think the thinking, and this was probably a strategy put, put together by his publicist, whom I've met and shaken hands with. I have his card in my f- card file somewhere. Uh, but uh, basically, I think they told Rick, "Listen, people have bad memories. It'll, you know, this whole thing will blow over. Don't, don't go and make it worse by, you know, giving people something hard and concrete to say, you know." And uh, and so I, I think they just basically handled him in such a way that it would kind of go away. Well. The thing is, is that um, it hasn't exactly gone away, and and the fact that he has never really uh, answered, uh, given an explanation as to what was going on there, um, he, he the reason why he hasn't given an explanation though is because he would either cheese off evangelicals or cheese off the. Um, by the way, cheese off is is an official term we use here at Fighting for the Faith. It means to upset somebody, he, or he would cheese off the. Um, uh, uh, the homosexual people who he's been trying to reach out to, you know, and uh, the thing is, is that he's you know by trying to please everybody, he's made everybody mad at him. And uh, what what's suffered as a result of it? Well, Purpose Driven Connection magazine ain't doing so well. I mean, it's been out for a year now. Uh, this will be the fourth issue coming out. And um, the, well, subscriptions ha- just haven't been, you know, jumping off the 
And see, the thing is, is that uh, the whole purpose-driven life fad thing, that, I mean, that's so, like, early 2000, 2001. I mean, we're, like, we're, we're getting ready to get into the 2010s, you know? And uh, we've already done that fad, and it's kind of run its course. And, you know, I mean, how many people uh, do you have out there that are rushing to buy Prayer of Jabez uh, tchotchkes and Bible covers and stuff? I mean, see, the whole Prayer of Jabez thing, that's kind of all come and gone, too. So, anyway, I I just, you know, I'm thinking Rick Warren is really, really, uh, his approval ratings are not so hot. So... Anyway, so there you go. Sad news for the Purpose Driven Connection magazine. It's, it's, um, well, short-lived. All right. Okay. Uh, it's next one from the Guardian in the UK. Now, this is um, he- the headline reads: Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth sequel. Just what we need. Uh, stresses spiritual argument on climate. Now, see, I, the other day I told you that one of the reasons why I cover this whole climate change, global warming thing, because it has all the hallmarks of of a false religion. You know, it's it, uh, it's got an end of the world, the cata- catastrophic scenario, uh, and like many cults and other religions out there, not Christianity. I exclude Christianity in this case because Christianity is actually built on evidence in the historical fact. Where, but in the case of climate change, well, the evidence, the scientific evidence shows that the planet's been cooling for 11 years. 11 years it's been cooling. But that's okay, uh, cause Al Gore is, you know, he's gonna resuscitate. And, and, and not only that, the number of people believing in global warming now is, well, it's starting to taper off. Uh, you know, it's you know the approval ratings of uh, global warming crowd have been falling, and the reason why is because there's a lot of people in the middle of October, uh, they experience snow and really cold weather, and it was a very cool summer. I mean, it doesn't feel like the global warming; it feels like things are cooling down. So anyway, <clears throat> so this is from Susan. Uh, Goldenberg, and uh, the reason I'm reading this again is because uh, this is kind of a competing false religion is what we're looking at here. Um, Al Gore's much-anticipated sequel to An Inconvenient Truth has been published today with an admission that facts alone will not persuade Americans to act on global warming uh, and that appealing to their spiritual side is the way forward. So facts alone are not going to persuade Americans to act on global warming. Did I mention that this uh, paper that I got this from is from the UK? So facts alone are not going to persuade Americans to act on global warming. That, well, see, the reason why the facts alone won't do it is because the facts actually don't support global warming. Uh, the planet's been cooling for 11 years. Um, say So facts alone will not – so we're going to appeal to their spiritual side. In his latest book, Our Choice, A Plan to Solve the Climate Crisis – um, Al, um, listen, dude, um, planet's been cooling for 11 years. I'm not seeing any crisis here. So anyway, our choice to uh, plan to solve the climate crisis, the, the man who won a Nobel Prize in 2007. Well, that's that. Didn't uh, Obama just win the Nobel Peace Prize for, you know, that? and he's, he's going to use that to motivate him to actually do something to earn the prize that they gave him? 
<clears throat> anyway, uh, so uh, okay, t- uh, um, for his uh, tour uh, touring slideshow on disappearing polar ice and other consequences of climate change, concludes simply laying out the facts won't work because <laughs> the facts are not in your favor, Al. Instead, Gore tells Newsweek magazine in a pre-publication interview that he has been adapting his fact-based message. Uh, now put out by hundreds of volunteers to appeal to those hundreds of volunteers, by the way, uh, to appeal to those who believe there is a moral or religious duty to protect the planet. I've done a Christian-based training program. I have a Muslim training program and a Jewish training program coming up. Also, a Hindu program coming up. I trained 200 Christian ministers and lay ministers here in Nashville in a uh, version of the slideshow that is filled with scriptural references. It's probably my favorite version, but I don't use it very often because it it can come off as proselytizing, Uh, Gore tells Newsweek. Well, actually, I think the whole global warming slideshow is a form of proselytizing, trying us to buy into uh, something that uh, isn't supported scientifically um, and... uh, and trying to get us to believe in this end-of-the-world scenario about the planet warming up because of human um, behavior, and yet, for some reason, it's just not panning out. Okay, let's see here. Uh, Gore's book arrives at a time of intense international scrutiny of America's moves on the environment ahead of an international meeting on global warming in Copenhagen, now just more than a month away. It draws on the scholarly approach Gore developed for inconvenient truth, including inconvenient truth, by the way, they killed digital polar bears. Those weren't real polar bears in the inconvenient truth. That was, those were all computerized, um, computer-generated animation. Anyway, um... Since 2007, the former vice president has been calling experts together from fields ranging from agriculture to neuroscience to discuss possible solutions to climate change. Oh, man. Just the anyway. So you get what I'm saying? So at this point, I mean, the big thing is, is that now it's not facts alone. We've got to um, appeal to Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Jews and we 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 got to come up with a spiritual argument for it because um well did i mention the fact that um the bbc has been reporting that for the last 11 years the planet has actually been cooling not warming so i mean I, just call me a naysayer but if the planet's cooling um it, where's the big crisis again um I'm just not seeing it. So anyway, that just kind of proves uh, what I said earlier, and that is is that um, he's basically, um, well, th- th- this is a religious argument. That's it has all the hallmarks of a religious argument, and that's the reason why I talk about it here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. I think that the whole uh, global warming thing is actually a competing religion. All right, now. As I've said, um, I have, as you all know, I have spent a lot of time reading emergent books, attending emergent conferences, spending time with emergents and progressives. And if I have another one of them tell me how brilliant Peter Rollins is, I am likely seriously considering just breaking out in hysterical laughter and, and laughing at them. 
The reason I say that is because Peter Rollins is okay. Sh- sure, he's brilliant, but he's brilliant in the in the same way that the guys who sold the emperor his new clothes is bril- are the, the, those. The, that's the kind of brilliant we're talking about here. And the reason I say that is because Peter Rollins, you know, I've read his book Orthodox Heretic, and I'm gonna have to pick it apart and just come up with a cookie cut with the uh, the soundbite quotes from it. Uh, but on his blog today, there's there's a theme that runs in uh, Peter Rollins' uh, uh, universe. Hang on a second, let me pull this up. Peter Rollins. Uh, .net. Anyway, um, Peter Rollins, um, I tried to put a comment on his blog today, and wouldn't you know it, he didn't even approve it. I, I'm a little disappointed that he didn't approve my blog post. It kind of shows me that he's not really interested in having an emergent conversation with me. But uh, on his blog right now, uh, PeterRollins.net forward slash blog, um, the, the, head, the current top of the blog headline reads, To believe is human, to doubt divine and if you've read any peter rollins this is the he turns everything up on its head and yeah this is just bad it's it's almost not even worth commenting on but the problem is is that peter rollins people in the emergent movement think this guy's brilliant okay but it I, I, I'm just not seeing it so to believe is human to doubt is divine he's going to be giving a lecture at Syracuse University on December 1st and uh, on, you know, basically following this track. Now, I heard uh, uh, Makisha Fisher uh, at the Christianity 21 conference. She talked about the importance of doubt. And, you know, this is one of the themes that's running through the emergent church movement. And it's just absolutely silly. And and the reason I say that is because that's what it is. It's silly. Okay, the scriptures do not call us to doubt. They call us to faith and belief and trust. They do not call us to doubt. But so, see, in emergent thinking, doubt equals faith. But let me let me demonstrate why this is not so. And I'm going to do that. Do this using what we call in logic a reductio ad absurdum. Now I'm going to basically say, all right, well, let's assume that Peter Rollins and the emergent crowd is right. That doubt is divine and belief is is a bad thing. You know, belief is bad, doubt is good. Uh, belief is human, or and doubt is divine. Okay, if I mean, you gotta. If this is true, then I should be able to do some substitutionary work in, in the biblical texts, right? The the text that they doubt. So here we go. All right. So Matthew chapter nine verse twenty seven. I'm just gonna change a couple words here. Do a little bit of uh, exchanging. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you doubt that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord, we doubt. So then he touched their eyes, and he said, According to your doubt, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. Uh, But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Does that work that way? Do you doubt that I'm able to do this? So according to your doubt, be it done to you? No, it 
doesn't work at all. Let me try this one out. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 5, Jesus speaking, this is all red letters, whoever receives one child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who doubt in me to sin, it would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Does that work? If you cause one of these little ones who doubt in me to sin? Uh-uh. No, that doesn't work. Okay, hang on a second. Let me try another one. All right, this is kind of a longer story. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 17. So leaving them, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to the fig tree, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither? And Jesus answered them, Well, truly I say to you, if you have doubt and do not believe, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have doubt. Does that make any sense to you at all? It doesn't make any sense to me either. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just not seeing it, how doubt is divine. Let me try this one. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and doubt in the gospel. Nope, that doesn't work either. Okay, let me try one more. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed. And they ran up to Jesus and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And so Jesus answered them, Oh, doubtless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy. And when the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked him, asked his father, well, how long has this been happening? And he said, well, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, uh, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who doubts. See, it doesn't work, does it? So is doubt divine? No, it's not. And... These emergence, embracing doubt and calling it a humble hermeneutic or whatever they want to call it. It's just completely cockamamie and it's not brilliant. It's actually kind of stupid. Anyway, I'll talk a little bit about more on the other side of the break. We have to pay some bills. Now, I need to... Need to remind you, uh, if you would like to email me, you can. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <laughs> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. 
Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now! That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. We actually believe that there's a thing called truth. And if uh, you believe something contrary to it, uh, well, you're not believing the truth, you're believing a lie. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend on you in order to pay our bills, and your gifts help support Pirate Christian Radio and the mission of bringing this discernment ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins uh, to uh, people around the world. I mean that literally. And right now we're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join our Pirate Christian crew, and we've still got a long way to go, folks. And uh, so just wanted to let you know, when you sign up for the Pirate Christian crew, you're signing up a mere $6.95 a month. It will be deducted from your account automatically. And uh, once we get to a 1,000 listeners who've joined our crew, then that guarantees that at least on a monthly basis we're able to pay uh, all of our bills, uh, granted that there's nothing extra that we want to do. But 
that's a different story. And that's kind of our first goal. We want to get to the point where we're doing that, and then we'll talk about how to grow from there. But uh, we need you to join our crew. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on Join Our Crew. And when you do, we'll be sending you an email uh, that you, you can then use to access our secret pirate Christian cove. Uh, which is a growing treasure trove and anthology of good theological resources designed to help you understand uh, sound biblical doctrine and theology and uh, basically help you as a layman to be a good theologian, a good theologian of the cross. So again, fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. And if you'd like to donate above and beyond or a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button and or uh, making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, as promised earlier in the program, at the beginning of the program, I got audio here uh, of a video of a guy on YouTube who, well, he claims to be Jesus Christ. Let's uh, listen in. Hi. Hi, yeah. I'm Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, no, you're not. Can you get to the point, uh, uh, whoever you are? You're not Jesus Christ, by the way. Just sitting there with his big puppy dog eyes and his soul patch. By the way, if you'd like to view this, you can... I have it at the Museum of Idolatry, which is at alittleleven.com. When I left this world, I was 32 years old. No way. Really? And there were a lot of things that were unsettled. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, I mean, kind of an abrupt end, don't you think? A lot of things that were unsaid and... I don't know. I'm 32 now. You don't know? And you're 32 now. Okay. Um, hmm. Not sounding very divine. In the year 2009. Um, so many things have changed. Yeah, you know, you're right. So many things have changed. I mean, we've gone from having, like, you know, horses and donkeys to actually the uh, internal combustion engine. We now have computers. We can, you know, we can fly. I mean, lots of things have changed. Indoor plumbing, you know, toilets. I mean, this is some good stuff. And the world needs a boost. Oh, the world needs a boost. The world needs peace. And... Too much pain, and there's too much fighting. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, this is too much of that. In in our own communities and in the world. It's terrible, isn't it? What are you proposing, Jesus? And I believe that we can have world peace. That's we, so great of you. I'm so glad you believe that. We can start with you two. And we can have peace with you two. I kid you not. I mean, he's doing this thing with his eyes that is absolutely obnoxious. Kind of got the puppy dog eyes thing going on. And, you know, kind of that, that pensive thing. I'm going to tell you the secret. 
Oh, please do. I yeah, <laughs> love to hear it. The secret to heaven. I've seen heaven. That's, yeah, to be expected. I see heaven. This is the most pathetic thing I've seen. <laughs> <sighs> he he kind of looks like uh, Anton, uh, uh, that uh, skater, Anton Ono. That, you know. And I can show it to you. You can see it now. Woo! Thank God. It's all around you. It's right in front of you. Um, all I see is the radio studio on my computer and a microphone. But it's sad because a lot of the world is blind. Yeah. Because uh -huh. the one problem is people aren't living in the moment. Oh, yes, yes, because people aren't living in the moment. Whew. Yeah, that's, that's some deep stuff right there. Heaven is in the moment. Oh, he he heaven's in the moment. And what does that mean? Right now. This instant. Mm, uh-huh, yeah. So the past doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. The future? Hey, it's out of our control. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, it's out of our control. We control nothing. <gasps> wow, that's deep. And I guess control makes us feel safe. Uh-huh, yeah. But yeah. It's, it's a sad life. Yeah, terrible. You never, you can't really experience fulfillment or the joy or the happiness. Right, because we're not living in the moment because we're, yeah. You will not see heaven. Now... Would you feel better if I told you that there's heaven after life? I don't want to lie to you. I can't promise that. I'm sorry. Mm, okay, yeah, wow. <sighs> kind of a weak, limpy Jesus. But what I can promise you is that heaven is very real. Oh, okay, wow. And yeah, it's in the moment. It's right here. It's right now. Whew, I almost tripped over it. Wow. I don't know what happened. Uh, to, to what? You, you don't know what happened to... What are you talking about? This is really the most pathetic excuse for a Jesus I have seen in, um, well, at least a day or two. We became so divided um, after I died. Everyone split up. The world sort of did their own thing and kind of follow their own agendas. But this is the thing. Everything happened, everything that has happened, uh -huh. is exactly how it was meant to happen. Then why are you complaining about everyone doing their own thing if that's the way it was meant to happen? And... Everything is meant to be. So, what do we control? Let me go back to that concept of control. 
Yeah, please. I mean, I'm taking notes. You control nothing. I control nothing. Yeah, that, I got that earlier. Yeah, thanks. The only thing we do control, though, uh-huh. is you control one thing. Yeah, what's that? And that is living in this moment. Oh, yeah, we control living in the moment. Yeah, you keep talking about that. So, since we have control of nothing, enjoy the ride. Sit back. Take it all in. Don't hold on. Let things flow. Live a good life. Karma is very real. Karma is real. Didn't expect to see or hear Jesus talking about karma. And one thing I have to say. Yeah, please, get on with it. I mean, yeah. Um... Some people in church. Yeah, uh huh. Some people in church. Yeah. In the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Sin. Yeah, sin. That whole sin thing. Yeah. There is no sin. Okay. One thing we can do with this, Jesus. <laughs> Goodbye, Jesus. The there is no sin, Jesus, and live in the moment, Jesus. Yep, that moment's over. Nut job, and we pray that God would grant him repentance for the forgiveness of his sins, because uh, it's not a a small thing. Uh, That's full-blown blasphemy there, claiming to be Jesus. Wow. All right, Al Mohler on his uh, website has a wonderful op-ed piece, which is a review of the uh, new book by John Franke of the Emergent Church entitled Manifold Witness, the Plurality of Truth. Um, Let me sum it up for you. This is a brand new clever argument on the part of the emergence to basically put a new veneer on that old heresy known as truth is relative. Uh, and uh, Al Mueller has a fine review here. By the way, we're going to do the political thing when we get back from the second break. Just want to let you know. So here we go. Here's Al Mueller's uh, thing. And this is an important piece. Uh, is truth really plural? Um, the question of truth stands at the very center of the postmodern challenge. As with any major shift in human thinking, postmodernism comes packaged with both positive and negative elements. Positively, the general worldview of postmodernism reminds us that we are deeply embedded in cultural and linguistic systems that shape and influence our thinking. Furthermore, postmodernism can provide a corrective to epistemological arrogance, the tendency to claim premature finality for our thought and truth claims. On the other hand, the negative dimensions of the postmodern turn are often deeply subversive of the very concept of truth. Indeed, the rejection of truth in any knowable and objective form is one of the greatest challenges postmodernism presents to the Christian faith. The question raised by postmodernism can lead to uh, the development of a healthy and faithful epistemological humility. On the other hand, the more general effect of postmodernism has been to insinuate a very dangerous epistemological humility that can undermine confidence that any truth can actually be known. In recent years, John R. Franke, a professor at Biblical Theological Seminary in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, has been among the foremost proponents of the embrace of a postmodern worldview. A major figure in the emergent church, Franke has been uh, significantly critical of modern evangelicalism. In his new book, Manifold Witness, the Plurality of Truth, 
Franke offers an argument that pushes the postmodern envelope and offers what amounts to a completely new way of understanding the truth. Uh, truth, Franke argues, is, an inher- is inherently plural. Franke's new book is part of the Living Theology series published by Abingdon Press in cooperation with the Emergent Village. Uh, the book deserves close attention for it presents a vision of truth that we are sure to confront in years to come. In, yeah, it's there right now, I'm telling you. From the onset, Franke speaks honestly of his frustration when asked about the understanding of truth. Personally, I will admit that I am beginning to find the question more than a little annoying, he states. Franke forcefully insists that he does believe in truth. But Manifold Witness presents an understanding of truth that amounts to postmodernism in full force. Helpfully, uh, Franke sets out his thesis early in the book. He begins with the argument that the Christian church has embraced plural form truth claims and then argues that the Christian faith is inherently an irreducibly pluralist. As he explains, the diversity of the Christian faith is not, as some approaches to church and theology might seem to suggest, a problem that needs to be overcome. Instead, this diversity is part of the divine design and intention for the church as the image of God and the body of Christ in the world. Christian plurality is a good thing, not something that needs to be struggled against or overturned. Uh, this is a truly breathtaking argument. Indeed, Franke understands that his embrace of pluralism is itself a product of his own postmodern context. Previous generations of Christians, he acknowledges, considered plural truth claims, doctrinal formulas, and theological systems to be a challenge that required clarification and the discernment of truth, not as a condition to be embraced. The early Protestant church was characterized by plurality, but this does not mean that Protestants were pluralists, he concedes. Uh, They were not. Instead, they were committed to establishing the one true church over and against the Roman Catholic Church, which they viewed as a heretical distortion of the one true church. The reformers were corrected there. They were committed to one true way to be Christian, uh, the one right way to read the Bible, and the one system of doctrine, the one right set of practices. Not so in the emerging church movement. Uh, Instead, that movement is similarly characterized by plurality. But in contrast to historic Protestantism, it also affirms plurality as, as an appropriate and necessary manifestation of Christian community. Thus, plurality is not to be opposed, but rather something to be sought and celebrated. This explains how the emergent village community can claim to, quote, honor and serve the church in all of its forms, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, and Anabaptist. And I would even say Mormon if you uh, read uh, Phyllis Tickle's book. In Manifold Witness, Franke offers a skillful review of postmodernism and its understanding of truth. Furthermore, he expends considerable energy and thought in the task of calling Christians to an understanding of the careless way some believers speak of truth. Many of his thematic statements are both eloquent and helpful. Franke is certainly right when he exhorts, quote, Christians committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ should not acquiesce to the cultural relativism that gives up on the notion of ultimate or transcendent truth. Uh, But we must also resist the temptation of espousing a notion of truth that makes an idol out of our own conceptions, assumptions, and desires as though they are not, uh, as though they are not Subject to critique. Is the Trinity pluralist? 
So far, so good. Franke offers a genuine and prophetic warning when he urges white Western evangelicals to consider the extent to which our own cultural context has shaped our thinking and beliefs and the temptation to assert our own cultural assumptions rather than the gospel as the Christian message. Nevertheless, the thrust of Franke's argument goes far beyond that warning In arguing for the plurality of truth, Franke seems to ground this plurality in the very nature of God. In in emphasizing a social understanding of the Trinity, Franke argues that plurality exists even within God, and he explains differences part of the life of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they live in fellowship of missional love. The ministry of the Trinity is indeed so profound as to be beyond human imagination and knowledge. Nevertheless, the Bible does reveal the unity of the Trinity to be definitive. Throughout the centuries, faithful Christians have taken care to honor what the Bible reveals about the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yet, Franke asserts in the life of God is the experience of what is different, other, uh, other not the same, Frankie argues that God does reveal himself to his creatures, but he also insists that God chooses to be revealed through creaturely mediums that bear the marks of their finite character. In other words, the actual text of the Bible involves creaturely limitations. These limitations remain in place in spite of the use God makes of them as the bearers of revelation, Frankie asserts. Notice he's talking about the word of God as being the bearer of revelation. In the end, Franke's understanding of the Bible falls desperately short of evangelical conviction. In an argument similar to that made by the, his late mentor, Stanley Grenz, Franke argues that Christian communal identity has been bound up with a particular set of literary texts uh, that together have been identified by that community as canonical scripture. He speaks of the Bible as, quote, inspired but his argument is that the Spirit has spoken and now speaks and will continue to speak with authority, guiding the church into truth uh, through the canonical text of Scripture. His proposal seems to leave no room whatsoever for verbal inspiration. That's out, that's for sure. Uh, the Bible is the principal means by which the Spirit guides the church today, Franke affirms. But he goes on to state that the speaking of the Spirit is not bound solely by the original intention of the biblical authors. Utilizing a postmodern understanding of literary texts and their interpretation, Franke asserts, uh, the speaking of the Spirit through the text of Scripture means that while the intention of the author is an important concern, it is not the only concern. It does not represent the fullness of the speaking of the Spirit, since this always involves the response of the reader. Following me so far? Further, put another way, the goal of the reading of the Bible is not the attempt to identify and codify the true meaning of the text in a series of systematically arranged assertions that then function as the only proper interpretive grid through which we read the Bible. Such an approach is characteristic among those who hold particular approaches to theology and hermeneutics in an absolutist fashion, nice way of putting it, and claim that such procedures will lead to the arrival of the true and proper conception of doctrine contained in Scripture. The danger here is that such a procedure can hinder our ability to read the text and listen to the speaking of the Spirit in new ways i gotta pause there for a second yeah when somebody talks about listening to the spirit in new ways uh they're basically trying to get get you off of the scripture so they can inject some doctrine that is absolutely contrary to the word of god such as gay marriage 
Now, this means that we are not actually bound by the words of Scripture, Franke argues. Instead, the church is to engage the Bible, trusting that the Holy Spirit will lead the community into a new understanding. Thus, the emerging church would be freed from accountability to the actual words and propositional statements of Scripture. The community can simply claim that it is being led by the Spirit into a new and different understanding. <coughs> this is theological liberalism in a new key. Of course, this is the very argument asserted by Protestant liberals over the last two centuries. Franke adds postmodern concepts and language to an old argument. The new liberalism chastened by postmodernism for its extreme individualism now puts theological revisionism into a communal context. The result is the same, the subversive, the subversion of the bit of biblical Christianity. Yep. Clearly, Franke and other emerging types will chafe under that criticism. Indeed, even as he criticizes the notion of historic Christianity and any set of minimum beliefs necessary to be a Christian, he also asserts, of course, I believe in truth. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that the Holy, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen, Franke says. <clears throat> By the way, when Bob DeWay and I, uh, were there listening to, uh, Franke wax eloquent about this at, during his breakout session at the Moltmann conference, um, uh, he claimed that he still has a category for heresy, but apparently the, uh, Unitarian Church that didn't fit into that category. They they just had some theology that was, well, problematic. I continue reading. The problem is this. Franke's argument that truth is plural means that the church should both embrace and celebrate different and even contradictory understandings of these doctrinal statements and core truths. That doesn't make any sense, but yeah, that's correct. While Franke is undoubtedly correct in warning that no theological system is free of cultural limitations... His proposal amounts to a total and unconditional surrender of doctrinal accountability. Yeah, we can't even know what the Bible says anymore. While he insists that not all doctrinal assertions are allowable, he undercuts the authority of Scripture to serve as the norm for establishing truth from error. The Protestant liberals of the 19th and 20th centuries often offered words of criticism orthodox believers and theologians needed to hear. Nevertheless, their subversion of biblical truth and their embrace of heresy rather than orthodoxy established these theological liberals as adherents of a religion fully distinct from biblical Christianity. And that's exactly what the emergent church is too, by the way. Now the leading edge of the emergent church movement follows the same trajectory. Manifold Witness is a fascinating book, but Franke's proposal is a recipe for theological disaster. In this book, a new postmodern form of theological liberalism co- comes fully into view. Yes, it does. And, yeah, it basically, it's just a clever spin on old liberal ideas of relativism. It's just relativism called a different way and argued a different way, but ultimately that's what it is. Stop telling me what the Bible says. I don't believe those things in the Bible. I don't want to believe the Bible. It's I don't want it to be authoritative and binding on my thoughts and my body and my mind and my theology. I want to worship God the way I want to worship God, and I don't want anyone to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Uh, what is the emergent church? It's a theological temper tantrum against biblical truth. So anyway, all right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, the uh, uh, the forewarned segment on uh, uh, politics, I'll get into this a little bit, just talk about the story 
and to pick it apart. And then uh, later in the second hour, we'll ta- we'll do our sermon review. Stephen Furtick's The Joy Genome, uh, also, uh, this sermon series is called that. The sermon we'll be reviewing is Joy Jitsu. Can't wait to get to it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there is, well, you know, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, 
Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith. As previously warned about, we're going to talk a little bit about politics. Y'all remember... uh, Back in the summer, Brian McLaren and the uh, progressives, the emergent types, were talking about that there's a need for civility in public discourse, and 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 we need to stop being uncivil. Well, apparently, all that uh, lack of civility talk is uh, out the window, and uh, the reason I say that is because. Uh, been tracking a story that was first covered in the uh, American Spectator. And uh, this particular story has got me, well, uh, upset. So much so that uh, I'm going to actually talk for real about politics for a second. And here's the deal. Okay. There is a group of religious left organizations that have come together. And the name of their organization is the So We Might See organization and it's a, a a group for a national interfaith coalition for media justice now you've all heard of social justice right well apparently this group of folks is out there calling for media justice and it involves such uh, interesting groups as the united church of christ the uh, evangelical lutheran church in america aka the elca these the, the heads of these organizations or their their media campaigns group. Uh, I think the Presbyterian Church USA is involved. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting stuff, and they've basically what they're doing is they're uh, they want to petition the um, Federal Communication Commission, the FCC. Now that the hate crimes bill has been passed and signed by, by Barack Obama. Uh, it's the religious left that is now taking action, taking the bull by the horns and, uh, and calling for a petition for inquiry. Let me read. This is from their website. Um, and, uh, to chairman Julius, uh, Granowski, uh, who of the federal communications uh, commission, um, the, uh, this is regarding a petition for inquiry into hate speech in the media and request to update report on the role of telecommunications in hate crimes. Uh, Dear Chairman uh, Grenikowski, FCC Commissioner and Assistant Secretary Strickling, on behalf of the So We Might See Coalition, we are supporting the requests of the National Hispanic Media Coalition and urge the Federal Communications Commission to open up a notice of inquiry into hate speech in the media and urge the National Telecommunications and Information Agency to update its 1993 report, The Role of Telecommunications in Hate Crimes. Uh, we're concerned about the issue because of the possible connection between hate speech 
and violent hate crimes and the lack of information for members of the public concerned about this issue. Okay, so what's their concern? That there might be a connection between hate speech and violent hate crimes. Now, I want to point something out to you, folks. Um, For centuries, millennia, there have been laws on the books regarding murder and uh, battery. Battery would basically mean beating up your neighbor. Okay. Um, And in the United States, murder and battery, I think they've been illegal from the beginning. Uh, Even before the United States was a nation, murder and battery were uh, well considered criminal activities. Now, here's the deal. Hate crimes, hate crimes, hate, hate is a thought. Hate is something internal. Okay. Uh, here's my beef. Okay. When somebody starts passing quote, hate crimes bills, they're talking about crimes of the mind crimes of speech and so let me pull out my handy dandy um i have on my uh my phone uh, my iphone i actually happen to have a copy of the united states constitution um i believe this is free by the way if you have an iphone or an ipod touch you might want to get a copy of it let's see here first amendment all right uh, this is okay first amendment congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or the press, or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay, So Amendment Number 1 to the United States Constitution. I understand those of you living outside of the United States that this doesn't apply to you, uh, but this is an important lesson anyway. Um, that Congress shall not pass a basically pa- make a law that abridges freedom of speech or the press or the, you get what I'm saying or the freedom of religion. And here we have leading the charge to abridge freedom of speech is the religious left, so-called progressive Christians. And I put Christians in quotes here. Now these are your emergent types, if you would. And they're leading the charge to basically have an inquiry about the connection between hate speech and violent hate crimes. These we're not talking about. We're a violent hate crime is apparently a crime of assault, battery, or murder against a protected species in uh, of, of peoples. And and it's considered hate because it's supposedly motivated by malice towards people because you hate them. Now, I would say if you murder somebody, you probably do hate them. I mean, if you act if first degree murder, you know, uh, that would. Yeah, I would say that hate has something to do with it. But see, the thing is, is that thinking it and saying it and doing it are different things, but not theologically. But I'm talking at this point uh, when it comes to the law. Let me read a little bit more. During October, so we might see members are conducting a media violence fast and further educating ourselves on the difficult questions raised by hate speech. As a part of this campaign, we are reaching out to you to seek your help. The possible correlation between hate speech and violent hate crimes gives us great pause. 
Immigrant, minority, and religious populations are often targets of hate speech before they are subsequently the target of physical hate crimes. For example, in June 2006, four teenagers posed as federal agents and asked two Mexican men for their green cards. The teenagers then beat and robbed the two men, which, by the way, is illegal, while accusing them of stealing jobs from the U.S. from U.S. citizens. This incident occurred after talk radio show host Rush Limbaugh called Mexican immigrants, regardless of legal status, a renegade potential crime element that is unwilling to work. <clears throat> okay, stop there for a second. Who are they going after? They're going. Uh, I. I Limbaugh is named, but I don't think they're going after Limbaugh. They're going after uh, any religious speech or speech that would uh, derail uh, their progressive liberal political agenda. Now, listen, listen to how they told the story. There were four. There were two Mexican men that were beaten by four teenagers, and it just so happens, incidentally, that talk radio show host Rush Limbaugh said something derogatory about illegal immigrants. By the way, um, something a lot of people don't know. Um, back during the Clinton administration, I used to, uh, run a website called the Bogus News Network and I wrote political satire and, uh, Rush Limbaugh read a lot of my political satire on the air. I've listened to Rush Limbaugh for many years. I actually haven't listened to him recently. I, it's probably been a couple of years since I've listened to Limbaugh, but, um, Limbaugh is not a racist. And he doesn't make these kind of statements. This is obviously taken out of context when it comes to Limbaugh. But here's the deal. There's a problem. The problem is the logical fallacy known as post hoc ergo propter hoc, or as my wife lovingly refers to it as post hoc ergo poppycock. Um, the, listen. Okay, they're basically trying to say that there's a connection. Rush Limbaugh happened to say something derogatory against illegal immigrants or against Mexican immigrants. And wouldn't you know it, at, right after he said that, these four teenagers beat up a Mexican person. So therefore, there has to be a connection between hate speech on the part of Rush Limbaugh and this hate crime committed by these, uh, these uh, young teenage thugs. So therefore, the conclusion is we have to shut up these people and get them to stop engaging in hate speech. You see, uh, they're committing the, uh, the uh, by the way, the logical fallacy post hoc ergo propter hoc basically means after this, therefore, because of this. Okay, it's a logical fallacy. And the reality is, is that. Proving a direct correlation, a one-to-one, Rush Limbaugh says something derogatory about Mexicans and teenagers then take to the streets and beat up Mexicans? No. And what's being attacked here, you know, if you really read this stuff, what's really being attacked is anything, any speech that contradicts the, the liberal political agenda, the Democrat Party's current uh, political agenda, for the bills they want passed and for the people they want to, quote, protect, um, anything that they think is some kind of a misrepresentation on the part of conservatives um, is considered hate speech. That's what's going on here. And who's leading the charge? People in the religious left. And when you read this, the American Spectator story, what's really interesting here is that the uh, United Church of Christ 
who's funding all of this? These efforts on their part to shut down freedom of speech on the grounds that it, it could lead to violent crimes. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. Um, well, it's um, funded by guys like George Soros. Uh, Acorn is involved in this. I mean, this is an interesting story. And the reason why I'm going after this is because, first of all, um, this is serious stuff. I mean, if this, I mean, if the FCC goes through with basically conducting their their investigation because these religious people have said, "Oh, it's terrible because of the they got hate speech that leads to hate crimes." Uh, there's a direct correlation between it. This can be used to shut down any kind of speech. Any kind of speech that contradicts uh, the uh, the uh, the current party in power's uh, political agenda, right or left, not just left. So, I mean, what we're talking about here, this is serious, serious stuff. I, I mean, we're talking about, okay, look at Rosebro on the air on Fighting for the Faith in front on you know in September of uh, 2009 said that homosexuality is a sin and shortly after he said that there was some poor teenager who came out of the closet and he was beaten to death and therefore there's there's got to be a connection between what Rosebro said and that kid being murdered uh, because he's a homosexual. Anything gets shut. I mean, this is, we're talking about the complete destruction of freedom of speech, which, by the way, is exactly what Christianity needs in order to continue preaching the gospel. Otherwise, uh, we got to go underground again and, uh, you know, and basically live as the persecuted church does in China. Kind of an odd situation to be in. So, um, Folks, if you follow me on Twitter or uh, my friend on Facebook, look for the uh, post that I put up there about are the FCC and the religious left working together to uh, d destroy or eliminate freedom of speech. This is a serious story, and this is one that I bring to you, and uh, this is seriously very, very bad and very dangerous and built on a house of cards. The problem is, is that most people do not know how to think their way out of a wet paper bag as a result of it. This sounds so compelling. We've got to stop hate speech that's put, that's causing violent hate crimes. N no. We have freedom of speech. We do not have, we've never had the freedom to murder people or uh, or to beat them to within an inch of their life. We have laws on the book for that. This whole hate crimes, hate speech stuff that's uh, that's been passed and is coming down the pike is designed to do one thing and one thing only, destroy freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And now you have people in churches, the religious left, basically arguing for the destruction of the ability to preach the gospel itself because that's the thing that's that you know this trajectory if this goes in if this goes the way it's going you won't even have the ability to call sinners sinners and call into repentance and the forgiveness of sins in public uh, lest you face criminal hate uh, hate speech charges that's where this is all going and so anyway Oh, just, it's got me worked up because the story itself is convoluted and it's complex and it's very, very serious. All right, we are up on our sermon review time and it's <clears throat> time for the sermon review music. 
Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Today's sermon comes to us via Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. Purpose-driven, church-planting rock star and pope of North Carolina, Stephen Furtick has recently launched into a brand new sermon series, apparently on the, uh, the epistle of Paul to the Philippian church. The name of the sermon series is The Joy Genome. This particular sermon is entitled Joy Jitsu. What are we listening for when listening to this sermon? How is he handling God's word? And is he um, picking up the main point or is he off in some kind of other la-la land? And when we talk about la-la land, is he basically... Is he talking about sins? Is he using God's law to condemn your sins and convict your sins and show you that you are a wretched sinner in need of a Savior and then giving you Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins as the solution? Or are you a victim of bad circumstances and having your joy robbed from you? (laughs) And you need to just discover the right principle to apply to your life so that you can be happy. Those are the things to be listening for as we dive into this. Kind of, we'll tell you some stories about Furtick along the way. All right, so let's kill that. There we go. So without any further ado, here is Stephen Furtick, Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, <clears throat> Joy Jitsu. Welcome today, everyone, all of our locations. Especially welcome to our brand new 8.30 a.m., Sunday morning, Matthew's worship experience, which is a laid-back acoustic vibe. And happy birthday to our Uptown Campus Director, Larry Hubatka. Today, today, we celebrate the birth of a great man who just turned 12. I'm 13. I'm your lead pastor, Stephen Furtick. Welcome to Elevation. I've been wanting to do a series on the book of Philippians for a long time, so I'm very excited about the content. Philippians is, to me, the happiest book in the Bible. The happiest book in the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I think our nation, our city, and most of the families who are part of this church could use a good dose of happiness right now in our lives. <clears throat> Still choking on the <clears throat> acoustic, the laid-back acoustic vibe at one of their churches. But uh, apparently the... Uh, um, Book of Philippians is the happiest book of the Bible? The I've read Philippians many, many times. Yes, joy and rejoicing is mentioned in it, but a happy book? I, yeah. It's the happy, happy, joy, joy song. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy. Apparently this song was written about the book of Philippians. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, joy. I don't think you're happy enough. That's right. I'll teach you to be happy. Oh, please do, Ren and Stimpy. I'll teach your grandmother to suck eggs. Now, boys and girls, let's try it again. Happy, 
we go. All right. Let's continue with the sermon. So apparently if, uh, the book of Philippians is the happiest book in the Bible. I think we're going to have to do some reading. And not just happiness, but true Jesus-centered joy. And for the next four weeks, we've allotted some time to walk through the key passages of this great book of the Bible. What makes it such an interesting book of the Bible to me... Now, i gotta, I got to give him props. He's working through a book of the Bible. This is a good way to do preaching. I have to give Furtick credit where credit is due. Uh, he's actually going to preach on a book of the Bible. He's done this a few times, and I have to give him kudos for doing so. That being said, the question is, is he, how is he going to handle God's word here? Well, let's listen. Is that it is the happiest book in the Bible, but it was written from a prison cell by an apostle named Paul. And to me, that just seems so fascinating that the happiest book in the Bible was written from a prison cell. You'd think that the apostle Paul would write the happiest book in the Bible, skipping through the meadows or lounging in a bubble bath or uh, possibly coming off a great crusade in the green room with great hospitality, eating some grapes, getting a rub down, super apostle, traveling the world, jet setting here and there, preaching the word. But in fact, he's actually on military lockdown for preaching the gospel, and he writes the happiest book in the Bible. So we're going to spend a few weeks together in the happy book. Oh, man. Yeah, um, the happy book. Um, now, I've, I've pointed this out before. If you were members of the, uh, of the Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith crew, um, then you ha- in the Pirate Christian Cove, I do have a, an article up there by Martin Franzman on you know seven theses regarding uh, Reformation hermeneutics. And uh, the thesis number one is if you don't understand uh, the topic under discussion, you don't understand the words. Uh, same thing applies when you're interpreting the book of Philippians. If you don't understand the subject matter, you're not going to understand the words. Keep in mind, the subject matter of the book of Philippians, it's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. It's about the gospel, Christ and him crucified for our sins, the imputed righteousness of Christ, his his incarnation. It's all about Christ. By telling us that Philippians is the happy book and the... Um, it's kind of it's that's kind of missing the 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 forest because of a really small bush, you know. It, uh, here you are looking. I mean, imagine being up on this vista and overlooking this magnificent vista, where down in this valley you see this incredible forest and the colors and the trees and the, and Bambi bounding off into the woods and you kind of miss the majest the majesty of that particular scene because right at your feet is this sh- shrub and you th- wow what a great shrub that it, yeah you're kind of missing the yeah happy book it's a happy book and I know. All right, gotta do this again. I apologize to all of my listeners for being gratuitous in uh, in the use of this Ren and Stimpy classic. Um, it, uh, it's the happy, happy, joy, joy song. 
By the way, nothing makes me unhappier quicker than telling me that I have to be happy. Just something I've noticed about my life. That through the course of these teachings, God is going to restore your joy that you may have lost in the last several weeks or months or years of your lives. Today we'll begin our study in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. And I'll tell you what, why don't we all jump to our feet at all of our locations and honor the reading of God's Word. Now, this is a good practice, jumping to your feet for the honor of reading God's Word. That's a perfectly fine and respectable thing to do. Again, i got to give him props for actually preaching on a biblical text. And again, we got to see what he does with it. So here, here we go. This is um, the reading of the Word of God. Pretty lengthy passage of Scripture and... And <clears throat> Pastor Furtick, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in confessional Lutheran churches, I mean, before the pastor even gets up, we've read probably three to four chapters or more uh, uh, out of the Bible in context. You know, you got your Old Testament reading, you got your uh, you, you got your epistle reading, and you've got your uh, and you got your New Testament, you got your gospel reading, and then on top of it, you got Psalms that we usually. Uh, read responsively. So, I mean, there's so much that I won't get to talk about when I start talking about it. So you just listen to every detail and I encourage you to not only open your Bible when I tell you to open it, but open it during the week and read it too. And study these things that I teach you at a deeper level. And feed yourself. It's part of maturity. As you're growing up in God, you should open the Bible and let God speak to you on a daily basis. But I'll try to jumpstart that process a little bit today. Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Verse 14. He is in chains for who? For being happy or for for uh, he's in chains for Christ. No, the, the book of Philippians really is about Christ. We... Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. I love verse 18. This is my verse. But what does it matter? Turn to the person next to you and tell them, so what? So what? I'm going to teach you today how to say so what to some things that really don't matter in your life. Uh, so apparently this verse is uh, kind of a preview here. This verse is about being able to say so what to the things that don't matter in life. Uh, the point of that particular verse is is that the gospel is being preached. And if you're not sure what that gospel is, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. You will find out very clearly what that gospel is, the proclamation that Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. 
Put your eyes on what does matter. What does it matter? What? So what? What you gonna do? Step to this. I mean, you want to preach Christ because you're sincere? You want to preach Christ because you're insincere? Doesn't matter to me. It's all Christ. It's all Christ and it's all good because it's all Christ. Y'all got to... I got to Okay, by the way, that's, that's, he's pointing out points to Christ. This is good. This is good. Help me keep keep in mind you got to watch for definitions and how he's using the phrases, but you know again, what we're looking for the law to convict us of our sins, the gospel to offer us uh, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ even to believers, by the way. Keep reading. Got a little bit more to read. The important thing, the important thing is that in every way whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I rejoice. I rejoice. He's rejoicing in the prison cell. Good God Almighty. Verse 18, part B. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain now I'm just going to point this out I mean just in reading this text we've heard about the gospel we've heard about Christ we've heard about everything about Christ what's Philippians about? It's, it's about Christ right? Let's see if he's able to find that important thing. Remember, you don't understand the words unless you understand the subject matter. The subject matter of the book of Philippians is, well, it's Christ. In fact, you know what? Let me read a little bit more to kind of help demonstrate this. He did he leave off at 18. Okay, let me... Uh, okay, no, he didn't. Uh, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's verse 20. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for if that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may uh, have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." And not frightened in anything uh, by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear and still have. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. This is good. It's all about the gospel and and uh, being in Christ. And okay, let's continue. Chapter four. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. 
but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, I when I talk about sanctification, I always point out, you do what you do because you are what you are. And so what is Paul pointing us to? Who we are in Christ. He's telling us, you know, he's encouraging us, basically exhorting us to loving our neighbors, not because of the law, but because of Christ and saying, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that is the, that is, uh, b- uh, the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, this, you see, uh, joy and happiness is kind of missing the point. And when you look at the words of Philippians, the subject matter is Jesus Christ, him crucified for our sins, him glorified, us participating not only in his righteousness, but in his suffering. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it was written from prison. And yeah, this is amazing stuff to come from somebody written in prison. Apparently he didn't let his circumstances get him down. But why? Because he's in Christ. Let's see what Pastor Furtick does with this. What a wonderful passage of scripture. Father, we thank you for your word. We lay our lives before you today and ask... Is that the Mr. Rogers music playing in the background? ...ask you to come and fill us with the kind of joy that the world does not give and the world cannot take away. So many people... Why do we need music playing in the background when someone's praying? That's just cheesy. People are suffering under the weight of so much depression and anxiety and fear. And the anic- oh man, is this a, is this an epistle about overcoming anxiety and fear? Uh, what he read to us from chapter one isn't about that. Oh boy, I think we're going to have to do some adventures in missing the point. I just feel it coming. Go to that kind of depression, anxiety, and fear that is given by the world is the joy that is only given through Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our friend, our Redeemer, Jesus, who is our joy. Now, I want to point something out. You're talking about Jesus as being our Redeemer. You just heard the gospel in passing. You you just heard it. Okay, so it's not like you don't hear it uh, you know, with, with some of these guys. You do hear it, but let's see if he makes it a main point. Now, he might. It just, well, it just doesn't look hopeful at this point. I pray today in the name of Jesus, the risen Son of God, that joy would fill this house. I pray that joy would flood our hearts. I pray that now, even as I voice this prayer to you, someone who has not felt joy in a long, long time would begin to feel a little trickle of joy. And then let that trickle burst the dam of depression until a flood of joy breaks down the walls that separate your people from your intention. What? The thing that separates your people from your intention? Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, apparently uh, this is the, um, the... living the intention that God intended for you theory of 
salvation. And it's apparently about overcoming depression too. I mean, at least if the 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 prayer with the sappy music behind it is any indicator of what's coming. Oh boy! Do it now through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. For we pray this prayer in the name of the one who brings true joy in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Two phrases I want to call your attention to in the text, and we'll get back to them in just a moment. Paul says, What has happened to me in verses 12 and 19? And, and then he says, I will continue to rejoice. Rejoice. The predominant theme of this happy book of the Bible. Uh, why is he rejoicing? You listen, you, you got to have, there's got to be some context for the rejoicing. It's not like he's just happy because he's happy or he doesn't suffer from depression. Did, do you think Jesus Christ has anything to do with this? His joy and I'm not really a scientific person, but I wanted to approach this entire series from a more scientific standpoint. And in order to do that, I had to research what a genome was because I thought it was a cool word and we could put it in the series, but I wasn't exactly sure what it meant. And I know you're trying to front like you're real smart, you know, 1500 on your SATs, but you may not know, know what a genome is either. And I want to enlighten us all together, okay? A genome, I hope I explained this right. Um, if I don't, uh, 80% of people won't know any more than I know about it, and we'll be okay. But uh, the genome contains all of the genetic material for an organism. And so it's the chromosomes and the DNA and the genes. And the genes send all the information to the proteins that are required to stain, sustain an organism. And so these proteins actually determine what uh, an organism is going to look like, the health of the organism, and often even the behavior of the organism. That's what the genome does. So essentially, it's the, the master blueprint for the body. And reading the book of Philippians, you see the theme of joy emerge over and over again from the writings of a man who has no real reason to have joy from our perspective. And it occurred to me studying the book that there must be some other source of joy that determines the appearance and the health and the genetic makeup, the DNA of joy, must be a lot different from what we think that it is. The DNA of joy. I'm telling you, if you were just to just read the book of Philippians all by yourself without somebody telling you it's the happy book, you would pick up on the fact that Paul is rejoicing and mentions joy, but that's all because of Christ. Him crucified for our sins, the gospel, participating in his righteousness and his suffering. Hmm. Is because someone who should have never experienced it was experiencing it. And people all over the world who have very little materially experienced joy in a way that many of us who have great material wealth and abundance don't experience joy. So what is the master blueprint of joy. I found this article the other day. Again, got to point out the book of Philippians is not the master blueprint for joy. And just, it's not, it really isn't. It, it joy is a fruit of the gospel working in our lives. 
interesting to me. Um, I think I saw this in Fast Company. Um, there's a new prototype for Facebook. How many of you at all of our locations are um, Facebook users? Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. I don't do Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, and I like the- uh, something to keep in mind. Uh, <clears throat> um, Stephen Furtick has blocked me. I was following him for a while, but he blocked me. You know why he blocked me on Twitter? Well, because he announced uh, the other day that he had just finished his sermon. And I asked him if uh, he was going to preach the law to condemn us of, of our sins and, and offer Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution to that. And uh, just apparently just asking that question about his sermon uh, motivated him to block me. Kind of odd, don't you think, considering that that the message of Christ and him crucified for our sins is the very thing that p- brings Paul such joy, and he's doing a sermon series on Philippians. Just I thought that was ironic. Just want to throw that in there. The tweet, I tweet for Jesus. <laughs> you can tweet for Jesus. And um, pretty cool. I like giving people a little bit of insight into my normal life so you can know I'm just a normal guy who gives his kids normal baths. I mean... My kids don't take anointed baths in holy oil. My kids take baths and they scream and they yell at each other and they fight over toys and they beat each other over the head with pirate swords, just like your kids might do if they were four and two. Now, um, what that has to do with Facebook is absolutely nothing, but let me get back to this article. Um, they're, They're developing a prototype on Facebook and they're measuring something that they call gross national happiness. You know, you've got the the gross domestic product. Well, this is gross national happiness. What they're saying is that they could take this algorithm and find out the words that people are using on Facebook for their status updates and determine from that how happy we are collectively as a nation. And are there certain days that we as a nation are more happy than other days? And they determine all this based on the words that people use in their status update on Facebook. I thought that was fascinating. And there are little graphs and charts that tell you um, how happy we are on Thanksgiving versus Christmas, how happy we will be on Halloween, and how happy our nation is on Friday versus Monday. Pretty interesting stuff. Gross national happiness. Great stuff. Now let's get back to Paul for a moment. Paul is defining for his listeners, for his audience, the church at Philippi, he's defining his circumstances, and he's letting them in on some information. Back to verse 12, where we began. I want you to know, brothers. I want you to know, brothers. I want to let you in on something. Men and women, boys and girls, I want to, I want to tell you a, a secret. I know you've heard the report that I'm locked away in prison and I'm waiting to see whether I'll live or die, but I want you to know something. I want to clear some things up. Let me tell you something. What has happened to me, I've been thrown in prison for preaching Christ, I'm shackled to a different Roman guard every 8 to 10 hours, I'm forced to exist in substandard living conditions, and I'm doing this all because I did what Jesus told me to do. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. (laughs) I want you to know that things are not as they seem. I want you to know that I'm doing all right because the gospel's going forward. Okay, completely valid exegesis here. And what is the gospel? 
Christ crucified for our sins, risen on the third day for our justification. Just plain and simple, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Okay, keep that in mind. That's important. What is the gospel? What's the good news we're called to proclaim? The forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. We're to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. What has happened to me is terrible. What has happened to me is painful. What has happened to me is almost unbearable from time to time. But I want you to know that what has happened to me is serving a higher purpose than you can see with your human eye. There's a and that purpose is the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified for our sins, calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This is important. This is an important part. There's a subplot going on in my life. I want you to know about it. I want you to know that what has happened to me is actually moving the message of Jesus down the field. As a result, verse 13, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. What has happened to me? So I begin to think, what if Paul had a Facebook page? <laughs> and he doesn't. So we made one. Throw it up, guys. Here's the Apostle Paul's Facebook page. I'll walk you through this very quickly. Paul of Tarsus. Uh... He's got some friends. We've got Timothy, Barnabas, Craig Rochelle, Ananias, James, and of course Larry Tran, one of our keyboard players here at Elevation Church. How'd that happen? All right. And so if our happiness as a nation is measured by our status updates, I began to wonder what would Paul's gross national happiness contribution have looked like based on his status updates. If Paul had Twitter, what kind of status updates would he provide if Paul is posting on Facebook? And I don't want to make something up. That would be blasphemous. So I pulled it directly from the Bible. 2 Corinthians 11. Now you've got to remember, this isn't the first time that Paul's been punished for his uncompromising walk with Jesus. Paul went through hell in order to bring heaven to the Gentiles. And he gives us a little bit of a, a snapshot of what he's been through. I guess you could say this is Paul's status update in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. I'm going to warn you, this is pretty intense. If, if you um, want to think of the Apostle Paul um, as, a, as a handsome, smiling TV preacher, um, you want to skip this description because probably after what he'd been through, been through, he had a crooked nose and some missing teeth and a disfigured countenance because of what he'd been through for Christ. So okay, I'm going to point something out to you here. Uh, just recently, uh, Stephen Furtick had an audience with Joel Osteen. And, you know, Stephen Furtick has made it very, very uh, public knowledge that he wants to have a church the size of uh, Lakewood. 
And uh, the, the picture of him and, and uh, Joel Osteen is rather interesting, considering the fact that apparently Joel Osteen uh, preaches all about having your best life now. And Paul, according to Stephen Furtick's correct biblical description, was probably disfigured and really scarred as a result of the uh, the beatings that he's experienced because of his proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We continue. So here's, here's Paul's status update, directly from the Word of God, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He's defending himself, and he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. This is Paul's status update. How's he doing on the gross national happiness scale? We'll read on, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one, five times. This is the same beating that was administered to Jesus before they crucified him. Paul received it five times. This is a great point on his part. No, he's actually doing some good exegetical work here. Yet he rejoices. This is, a, this is an account, a first-hand account, a biographical account of what happened to Paul. Remember, he said, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This is what had happened to Paul. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with stones. That kind of stone. Okay, I'm clarifying this. Bible says Paul was stoned. Come on, mom. Jeez. Learned it in church. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits. I know that's not funny, but it always makes me laugh. In danger from bandits. It's not funny. In danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. No, is he... In danger from the people out there who don't believe the message. He's even in danger from the people who are supposed to be on his team. He's getting hit by his teammates. That's what had happened to Paul. This is his status update. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's Paul's. Status update. That's what had happened to him. And now he's in prison. Now he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he's rejoicing. What's the component of the DNA that can create that kind of joy in that kind of circumstance? I'll take a stab at it. Uh, Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Just shot in the dark there. Furthermore, what's the personal prison that has you on lockdown in your life right now that is keeping you from experience the Jesus kind of joy? Okay, this is where we're skating on thin ice. This is taking a bizarre turn into the psychological. Uh, um, what's the thing in your life that's keeping you from experiencing the Jesus kind of joy? That Paul so freely confessed in this letter. 
notice this is kind of a, you know, oh boy, I'm not joyful. Maybe I should be. Uh, is it bad if I'm not? Uh, you see what I'm saying? Is it sinful to not have joy? Where's joy come from? What do I have to do to get it? See, as soon as you start talking like that, you're turning joy into a work that you're supposed to have. You better get busy manufacturing it. And, again, and, and listen, telling somebody they have to be joyful is probably the most surefire way of guaranteeing that they won't be. Maybe the prison that you're locked away and maybe your personal prison sentence is that you're in a cold, unloving marriage. Well, that's a cold, hard place to sleep at night. That's a, that's a really really terrible place to serve out a life sentence is in a cold, unloving marriage. And you're not receiving affection, so you're not giving affection. And you have to do a drive-by on your own house to get yourself talked into going home at night. I know you can't nod or say amen at me because they're sitting right next to you. Just keep watching the screen and we'll get through it, okay? Many of you are in a sort of prison in your relationship with your children, they're rebellious and they're... Okay, notice here, um, the the prison of bad circumstances. This is, you, you're being victimized by bad circumstances. I, I am not a fan of this kind of preaching at this point. Uh, well, well, let's see if he lands on his feet, if he brings it back to Christ and him crucified for our sins. That Because that was really the source of Paul's joy. They're aloof, and you love them, and you can't get through to them. And that can be a type of prison. That can be a really hard, cold prison. That can be, um, that can be to me, the, the worst form of behind bars because you want to get out so bad or get into their head and their, their heart and their life so bad. And uh, Notice the allegorical use here. He's taken Paul's being in prison. Now what's the prison you're in? That's allegory. The relationship strain, and you can't make it better. Uh, for many of you who are single, you're in a prison of relational loneliness and isolation. And everybody tells you that being happy or being married won't make you happy, and being married won't make you satisfied, and being married won't make you fulfilled, but you'd sure like to try and find out for yourself whether they're right or not. And so you're shaking on the bars, let me out, God, and you cut your hair that way so they'd look at you because you saw it in the magazine, but nobody still seems to look at you, and you want out, and you're in this kind of personal prison. For many of you, it's a physical illness in your body. Several of you who are listening to me today have been diagnosed with cancer or someone that you love has been diagnosed with cancer. Others of you may have a, a, a mild uh, uh, disease that doesn't threaten your life, but it makes it really hard for you to live a normal life. It makes it hard for you to do the things you want to do. And it can be a sort of prison for you and it can contain your aspirations and it can in some ways, uh, lock down your sense of joy and your contain your aspirations. So the gospel is God setting you free from your allegorical prison so that you can attain your aspirations that are under lockdown. That's not the gospel. That's something different. Your sense of purpose and your sense of fulfillment. I wonder how many today are in a financial prison of sorts. And the, the wardens called American Express and MasterCard and Visa have you locked up 
And they serve you a a cold, hard meal every month called your statement. And they flog you and beat you. And you got yourself into the mess, but you sure would like some help getting out. And you're in a prison, a personal prison. Paul was in prison for his faith in Christ. Often we get ourselves in our own prison by decisions that we make. But it doesn't matter how you got there. When you're there, it's very, very cold. Uh, having a credit card uh, debt that's difficult to pay is not the same, not even on the same planet, as being thrown in prison for proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Uh, yeah. What's your Shawshank? What's your personal? Um, listening to the sermon? prison. And yet, there seems to be something that Paul knew in prison that enabled him to have joy sleeping on the cold, hard floor shackled to a Roman guard. And I think what Paul knew that we need to know, and it will really form the basis for my entire series, is this. True joy isn't defined by my status. True joy is defined by God's purpose, God's process, and God's promise. Say amen, church. Okay, now that third one, God's promise, has potential. There's, when, we talk, when we talk promise talk, there could be some gospel in there. I'm, I'm holding out for it and uh, hoping that he gets to it. Now, I'm going to say this to uh, Stephen Furtick's credit. His preaching has matured, okay? And, uh, yeah, I keep an eye on him and listen to his sermons quite regularly. And I've noticed over the past couple of years, his preaching has matured. Now, again, pointing out this, this fact that uh, we've heard the gospel in passing. It's not a primary point so far. Well, the critique at this point, it, it really falls along the lines of, yeah, he's talking victim and he's using allegory in his in his biblical interpretation. He really needs to stick to exegeting the text, not engaging in so much allegory and focusing on us on Christ and him crucified for our sins. That Paul's joy comes from uh, a participation in Christ's righteousness through faith as well as Christ's sufferings. Okay, that that to him, that was the source and spring of his joy. So it's all about Christ. Uh, that being said, though, you know, having listened to a lot of uh, Stephen Furtick sermons, I, I got to admit the kid's growing in, in his in, in the maturity of his preaching, which is so far he's worlds ahead of Rick Warren for this very reason. He's sticking to a text. Now, he's mangling it a little bit and he's not. He's not seeing the the important thing, but I'm hoping in that third point, promise that we can talk about the forgiveness of sins and that he would apply it to the Christians in, in uh, at his church as well as uh, to the non-believers. Well, we'll see when we get there. True joy is not defined by my status. What happened to me today, what will happen to me tomorrow, and certainly not what happened to me yesterday. True joy is determined by God's purpose God's process and God's promise toward 
me. I've been working for weeks now to craft a statement about true joy that our church could latch on to together and say out loud and a creed regarding joy stick to the creeds we already have the apostles creed the nicene creed as well as the athanasian creed these are time tested coming up with a creed regarding joy yeah it sounds very self-serving and 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 file in our hearts and like and like compress down into our spirits so that in our personal prison cells, whether it's a relational, physical, financial prison cell, or maybe just an emotional prison cell, a prison cell of depression that you can't rightly define. You know, um, my, my neighbor, well, not my actual neighbor, but someone who lives in my neighborhood, put in one of those underground dog fences the other day. You know, there's really, if you really love your dog, you'll get this thing they can't see that'll shock them if they ever step across it. And so they got this, because they really love their dog, so they got this uh, invisible shock force that, that will keep the dog from running out of the yard. And they put it in underground. And, and I was thinking about it. Some of you have bars that can be seen. Some of you have bars that are underground that nobody sees. But they keep you from going where God wants you to go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear clunking under the hood here, um, a, a different gospel. That's, that's a problem. And worse than that, they subdue, suppress, and annihilate your joy. And Oh, no. Oh, yeah, there's nothing worse than having your joy annihilated by um, invisible bars and fences and shock forces. Ah. <sighs> And I just said some nice things about Stephen Furtick. <laughs> you got to give him credit where credit's due. It's, it, it, listen, it's always a mixed bag. So I came up with this statement studying the life of Paul that I think defines in, in one sentence, a little bit of a run-on sentence, but in one sentence, it expresses the essence of joy. And here it is. I'm going to say it for you one time. Oh, please be about Jesus, because Jesus was his joy. It was that you can actually sum it up in one word, Jesus. If you want to expound it more, Jesus in him crucified for our sins, raised on the third day, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's what Paul came to do. Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises in the Old Testament, proclaimed to be the son of God, God in human flesh. And then we're going to say it three times, and all of you watching this by video need to say it too, because you need joy just as much as anyone. Mm. No, they need forgiveness, and that's where the joy comes from. You give them the content of the gospel, and the joy will follow. I guarantee it. And if you don't say it, you're going to be sad for the next 20 years. But before you say it, let me say it. My joy is not determined by what happens to me, but what Christ is doing in me. Ouch. Um, wow, that's infused, right? That's infused grace. What Christ is doing in me? Gotta be careful with that. That could potentially be Roman Catholic doctrine of the uh, of infused grace. Hmm. And through me. God, I love it. We're going to say no, I, I don't like it at all. Theologically, we got some problems. You might want to send that out to some theological fact checkers before you start just throwing stuff like that under your uh, church. Um, 
Say it together. Let it fill the house. Here we go. My joy is not determined by what happens to me, but what Christ is doing in me and through me. Again, my joy is, is not determined by what happens to me, but what Christ is doing in me and through me. I want you to tell well, the repetition is all kinds of exciting. It's the happy, happy, joy, joy song. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, joy. Tell the person next to you. Ready? My joy is not determined by what happens to me, but what Christ is doing in me and through me. Doesn't that set you free to know that you don't have to wait on your circumstances to change to have joy? You don't have to wait. Again, uh, Paul's joy comes about as a result of what Christ did for him and his participation in Christ's suffering. Different, different. It's very, it's theologically different as night and day. Wait on your spouse to respond to have joy. You don't have to wait on your kids to turn around to have joy. You don't have to wait to get hired to have joy. You don't have to wait to get a raise to have joy. You don't have to wait for the house to sell to have joy. Because your joy isn't determined by what happens to you. But what Christ is doing in you and through you. Paul said, I want you to know that what happened to me is like spiritual jujitsu. All right. Jiu-jitsu is a Japanese martial art organized around the principle of using your opponent's energy against him. Um, uh, so are we using Satan's energy against Satan? I mean, theologically, that would be the correct way of describing it, but uh, I'm not seeing that in the Bible. <sighs> Woof. Paul said they put me in chains. But guess what that means? I got a captive audience to preach to. They ain't going nowhere. So I've been telling people up in this jail about Jesus. And the gospel is going forward. See, Paul always wanted to preach in Rome. Now he's getting to preach in Rome. He didn't see it going down this way. But he's preaching in the prison. Let me slow down because I really want to build this jujitsu idea. I don't know jujitsu. But I invented a game that I've been playing with my four-year-old called Shakabar. Everybody say Shakabar. Shakabar was invented because I was laying on the couch trying to watch TV the other night. And my four-year-old kept running up to me and stepping all over me. And I got tired of it. So I decided to invent a game with the primary purpose of getting him to leave me alone. But in the process, he would think I was playing with him. Don't look at me like you've never done it. And don't you dare judge me. So I said, we're going to play a game called Shakabar. You come running at me, and when you do, I will throw you over the side of the couch, and you will fall down, and then you will run again, and I'll throw you over the side of the couch, and each time that I do, I'll say, Shakabar. Can I tell you that for the past week and a half, my child's favorite game is Shakabar. And, and Shakabar is very, very um, illustrative 
Um, I think the kind of spiritual jujitsu that Paul is using in order to turn his setback into a sermon. So he's saying, okay, if, if the enemy wants... Paul didn't set out with the goal of turning a setback into a sermon. ...to throw me in prison. Bad move for him. Because I'm just going to use his forward momentum to throw him over the side of this couch. Shuckabar. I'm just going to use this prison experience as an opportunity to set up a pulpit. If you throw me in prison, I will set up a pulpit and I will preach till the whole prison knows the purpose of Christ. What do you do with a guy like that? What do you do with a guy? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with a guy like Paul? How are you going to steal his joy? You got joy in the jailhouse. And I don't know necessarily that God is going to release you from your personal prison anytime soon. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. But I promise you this on the authority of God's word. If you will perceive God's purpose in your prison and participate in his process in you. Okay, notice this is all law. If you will. You can always spot law talk. Okay. It's an if-then proposition. If you do this, then God will do that. Quid pro quo is the way of saying it in Latin. This is law talk here. This is not the gospel. If you will participate in God's purpose, then you can have joy. It's dependent upon you, not what Christ has done for you. And he's not pointing you to the true source of Paul's joy. Paul's joy was Christ and him crucified for our sins you can have joy in your jailhouse okay i'm gonna back this up so you can hear the law the law thing here again this is pure law and the bible doesn't say anything of this sort this is a stipulation that well um stephen furtick has pretty much just invented himself listen again Maybe he won't, but I promise you this on the authority of God's word. If you will perceive God's purpose in your prison and participate in his process in you, you can have joy in your jailhouse. All right. So if you participate in God's uh, process uh, and purpose, whatever, if you know, that's the if, then you can have joy. How do I know when I've participated enough? How do I know I'm properly participating? Uh, how long before, how long do I need to participate before I begin to see the first fruits of the joy that God's promised me if I do that? This is not the gospel. This is bondage and this is actually the law. And he basically said this was on the authority of God's word. No, it ain't. Because salvation and joy and all of that's a free gift from God because of what Christ has done for us. Christ did it all. Christ is the one who participated in God's purpose and process perfectly for me and for you. In fact, that's kind of what Philippians chapter 3 is about. I'm so glad that I, I, that I brought this up because it gives me the ability to talk about Philippians chapter 3. Watch this. 
kind of moving ahead here in in the book, but it makes my point rather well. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. By the way, saying, if you do this, then God will give you joy is the equivalent of putting confidence in the flesh. That's what Stephen Furtick is preaching, confidence in the flesh. Paul preaches something different. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, they glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, completely blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as trash, as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's joy is in the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith, not the law. And his, and his joy is in sharing in Christ's sufferings and hoping somebody to be like him in his death. Suffering even to the point of death, just like Christ did. It's not a, if you do this, then you can have joy. No, his joy is because of everything that Christ has done for him and his participation in Christ and his righteousness. All of that is gift. All of that is given. It's not something you work for. It's not something as if you do this, then you do that. It's not a quid pro quo. It's all 100% gift to undeserving, wretched sinners who have nothing to offer God except for their sin. Hmm. Pastor Furtick seems to be missing that major important salient point there in the Bible. You can. And... You can use the momentum of the attack against you to advance the gospel beyond you. Paul proves it so clearly. You know, they threw Joseph in prison. In Genesis chapter 37, we're introduced to a young dreamer. He was sold into slavery and put into prison for a crime he did not commit. For all of you who are in a situation right now where someone else threw you into prison and you didn't do anything wrong to belong there, you can identify with Joseph. He didn't do anything to deserve. You didn't do anything wrong to belong there? Is this a gospel for the victims? What about the gospel for the perps, the, the perpetrators, the sinners, the guys who actually commit sin, 
who have earned God's wrath are still under God's wrath? To be isolated from his countrymen. In fact, all he'd ever done is help people, bless people, and serve to um, advance the affairs of whoever he was working for. And he gets thrown in prison, falsely accused of rape. But there was a purpose in Joseph's prison. There was a purpose in his prison because in the prison he met a man who would introduce him to the Pharaoh. And when he met Pharaoh, Pharaoh found out he was the only one who could interpret his dream. And because he was the only one who could interpret his dream, Pharaoh made him second in command. And because he was second in command, he was able to save not only the nation of Egypt in a famine, but his very own family and preserve Israel. There was a purpose in his prison. Daniel got thrown in prison. Daniel chapter 6. Actually, he got thrown in a lion's den. Okay, got to point something out here. Um, okay, they, uh, there's a purpose in the prison. Okay, using going with the allegory, going against every fiber of my being. Going with the allegory for a second here. Let's just grant the... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, let's grant the, uh, premise for a second. Okay, so, okay, um, uh, the, uh, the reason why, uh, so-and-so, uh, is so unjoyful is because they are in, uh, they, they are not experiencing the purposes that God has for them because they are currently in the prison of credit card debt. Um, and so as a result of it, they can't afford a new house and they have to live in a cramped, uh, apartment that's too small for their family. Uh, how do you know that the purpose of that particular prison isn't to punish them for squandering God's resources and misspending the money that he, uh, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, just maybe God's purpose is to punish you. God does that. Remember, there's a passage in Hebrews that says that uh, God disciplines those he loves. It might be that the, quote, prison you're in or the circumstance you're in or the suffering you're in is God, mm, well, disciplining you. Because, <clears throat> but there was a purpose in his prison. He went in there with that lion and God shut that lion's loud mouth. And the Bible says, and I believe it, that that lion did no harm to Daniel. And when King Darius, who was a wicked king, saw the power of the almighty God of the Bible, he issued a decree that everybody in the land had to worship the God of Daniel. Okay, you being in credit card debt is not going to cause Barack Obama um, to uh, declare to everybody in the nation that they need to worship Jesus. The, these two circumstances are not parallels at all. That, by the way, is one of the major problems with allegory. So Daniel was in prison, but there was a purpose in his prison. Jesus was arrested and put on trial and mocked. And they gave him 40 lashes minus one. Sound familiar? And they beat him so badly that you wouldn't have recognized him had you known him. But there was a purpose in his prison. Okay, yeah. Okay. Oh, man, if you're going to be talking about Jesus being beaten and crucified the the please give us the gospel and give it to everybody not just the the poor uh miserable uh pagan who wandered into your church that day because of some marketing piece you sent out and the purpose in his prison was that he might receive the penalty of the sin that every person gospel this is gospel the good 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 
would commit. And in Jesus' prison, many were set free. And the freedom of the gospel came into the earth because Jesus served his prison sentence well. And they put him in a tomb. Okay, it was a little light, but it was an actual point. So, okay, we heard the gospel. It was more than a nugget. He talked about Christ's sufferings and death and, and the freedom of the gospel. A little convoluted on the gospel, but it was there. So I got to give him props for that. And he got up from his tomb and he defeated death and hell. And there is a purpose in whatever tomb, whatever. Oh, no. Um, oh, boy. Now, see, here's the problem. Equ <laughs> equating uh, a bad marriage, debt, uh, misbehaved children, or whatever, quote, prison you're in, to Jesus' death on the cross, that's, not, that's no bueno. That's, that's out of bounds. That's a foul there. Whatever prison, whatever jail cell you're in, but in order to perceive the purpose of the prison, you've got to understand, like Paul understood, that what happens to you is not important a hundred years from now. What will be important a hundred years from now is how did my life advance the gospel? Did I move the gospel of Jesus forward? And if my pain serves for the progress of the gospel, of Jesus, then put me in prison. I'll set up a pulpit and I'll preach to the glory of God. Uh, yeah, uh, again, uh, uh, Stephen, uh, you allegorically created these other prisons, the prison of debt, the prison of the bad marriage, the prison of the uh, misbehaved children. Um, if I am in the prison of credit card debt, who am I supposed to be preaching to when I get my statement every month? Am I supposed to call up the lady at the credit card company and say, uh, you know, navigate through the, the voicemail labyrinth to a customer service agent somewhere in India and use that. Uh, it doesn't work. All your life you've wanted to make a difference. All your life you've wanted to help people just like Paul wanted to preach in Rome. And now God's got you shackled to a Roman guard in a dark prison cell and you don't feel like you're making a difference. I've uh, man, what is all this making a difference stuff? I was watching The Biggest Loser last night. You know, those are my peeps, by the way. Um, watching The Biggest Loser last night. And, and, and they had a segment where they took these guys to Washington, D.C. so that they can, quote, make a difference. They didn't need Jesus for that. They wanted to make a difference regarding national health. And, uh, and uh, you know, child childhood obesity. They're making a difference. Woohoo! They made a difference. They didn't need Jesus to make a difference. You don't need the gospel to make a difference. Uh, Hitler, did I ever mention this? Yeah, Hitler's made a difference. He, uh, Hitler made a difference. When he was elected, I mean, he got the trains running on time there in Germany. That made a big difference in people's lives. Made a lot bit and made them a lot easier. Come today to ordain you to set up a pulpit in your prison and preach through your life. Show somebody at work how Christians walk through difficult marriages. Show somebody that you work with how Christians walk through rebellious children situations. Show somebody at work how Christians process financial setback. Show somebody in your life how someone... Uh, no, if I'm going to 
preach to anybody, I the thing I'm going to be preaching is Christ and him crucified for our sins and calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. If I'm going to set up a pulpit. I'm going to do what Paul did and proclaim Christ, not me and how I get through debt or bad circumstances. No, I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. Oh, boy. Who knows Jesus walks through their prison, set up a pulpit, and preach in your prison. You can preach a sermon in your prison. Uh, the words, so what, come to mind? Uh, We're missing the point here. Uh, I wonder if I should do that. Uh, Well, wait. What does it matter? It's not about my status in life, Paul said. It's about the gospel of Jesus. And what is that gospel? You mentioned it kind of in passing. Bad, Bad use of it, too, by the way. When you turned our circumstances into, you know, Jesus, uh, it was bad. When you equated what our, our prison sentence with Jesus's uh, prison sentence, that was really missing the point. <sighs> Christ, my joy isn't determined by what happens to me. It's about what Christ is doing in me. He's maturing me. He's creating character that I couldn't that that I couldn't conjure up otherwise. He's he's using me. Yeah, this is the so-called gospel of life change, which, by the way, is Roman Catholicism. It's infused grace. What does it matter? The important thing is that Christ has preached. Hey, I know that prison time is hard time. I know that depression is real and despondency and despair are very powerful forces. So... That's that's why you've 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 got to invest your your aspiration for joy. You've got to invest. You've got to. That's law talk, not gospel. How sad that um, the gospel was um, uh, well a point in an allegory that missed the point. Uh. And 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 remember, folks. We're not talking about happiness. Happiness can come and go with one dip in your portfolio. Happiness can can come and go with one doctor's report. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. Joy is different. Joy isn't always giddy, but it's always satisfied. Joy doesn't always understand, but it always trusts. Joy doesn't always receive the reward right now, but it always hopes and the promise what does it matter if God is using this in me and through me then I rejoice I can rejoice in that can I tell you a quick preacher story I mean this is a really really old preacher story but you're going to love it there was a farmer who had a mule I told you, man, this is like old school. <clears throat> and his mule fell down in a well. In the oh, this is the same dumb story that Joel Osteen told. You know, here's a <clears throat> got Stephen. Uh, listen, dude. Um, 
the sermon was doing good when you actually were on the text, but see when you as soon as you left the text, uh, it it just went downhill rapidly. This, in fact, this sermon is kind of like that mule that fell into the ditch. <sighs> The mule was so old that there was no way the farmer was going to be able to rescue the mule from the well. In fact, uh, the mule is going to die any day now anyway. So the farmer just decided to bury him and put him out of his misery. And he called all the neighbors to come over and help him. And they started throwing dirt on that mule. But the mule wasn't ready to die yet. So he figured, he figured something out. He figured out, wait a minute. If I'll just shake this dirt off of me, then I can step up to a higher level on the dirt that they threw on me to kill me. So if I'll shake this dirt off, it'll create a platform for me to get closer to the top of this well. And so every time they throw a, 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 a shovel full of dirt on that mule, you know what you do? You just shake it off and step on up. Do it with me, do it with me. All I can say shake it off and step on up. You got to learn how to do that. And eventually, that mule walked right out of that well, and nobody knew what to say about it. But if you'll shake it off and step on up, you'll walk right out of the very thing that someone pushed you into intending to kill you, and you'll... Again, the gospel of victimhood. Uh, Steve, listen... Um. You might want to review the Ten Commandments with the folks there in your church and uh, see how that's working out for them. Just, you know, seeing if they're loving God with all of their heart, loving their neighbor perfectly as themselves. You know, not stealing, not coveting, not lying, not... Uh, you, you see what I'm saying here? Not murdering and, you know, and and really and, and whether or not they're keeping the Sabbath day holy and... And uh, what that means and not taking God's name in vain. You know, all of that stuff. See how they're doing. And really preach the law in such a way that it really forces them to be honest about their so-called righteousness. And um, and then when you're done doing that, because at that point you will have reduced everybody down to a completely no ability to claim self-righteousness piece of rubble, uh, give them the gospel. Christ and him crucified for their sins. Uh, see, the gospel is for perpetrators. It's for sinners. Christ didn't call to come, you know, didn't come to call the, the righteous, but sinners. So show them that they're sinners for whom Christ came and died for. Hmm. Use the very thing that the enemy threw on you to try to bury you to bless you. God can do that through Jesus. Now, now listen to me. It's so imperative. You got to remember the old Sunday school song. Remember this? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Y'all remember that song? Some of y'all didn't grow up in Sunday school. Who remembers that song? Who remembers that song and can sing? I hate that song. Keep your hands up. All right, those of you watching my video, just give me a second. You can sing. No, she said no. <laughs> Who can sing? Can you sing? Get up here right now, back row. Just hang with me for a second. Aren't you glad I'm not preaching live at your campus? 
I always told you the video sermon was better. Give her a hand as she comes. Run, run, run. Okay. You're going to preach with me. Come on, come on. Help her up. Help her up. Help her up. Right. Get her microphone. Can we get her microphone? It's going to be real easy. I'm going to help you. What's your name? Brenda. Hi, Brenda. Everybody say hi, Brenda. Okay. We've got a microphone for you. Is this on? Check one, two. Check one, two. Check one, two. Check one, two. Now, Brenda, hold that. Actually, let me hold it. You always got to hold the mic when, when, you, when you call somebody on stage because then you can take it away if it doesn't go the way. But I know I'm not right. going to need to. You're awesome. All right. You know that song? So this is how we used to sing it in Bible school. I don't know how you sing it, but we go. Um, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And then we go, where? Oh, you did that too. I thought that was just in Monk's Corner. So we go, uh, where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I know this is deep. Y'all hang with me and I'll explain it in a minute. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? To stay. Y'all give it up for Brenda. That was awesome. Hey, hey. You know the you know the next verse? This this is this is this is the monk's corner verse. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. You sang that too. That's good stuff. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you so much. Now listen. I actually have a purpose in singing that song. Remember when we used to sing that, I'd, I'd get real frustrated because it was so redundant. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Crap! It's in my heart. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you? It's down in my heart to stay. Okay? Where? Now, but I've been thinking about it. It's actually a very fitting way to sing the song. Because, because, because most of us are searching for joy out there somewhere. And so you need a reminder that joy is not to be found all around you. It's within you. I actually look outside of me to the forgiveness of sins, to Jesus Christ. Let's see what he does with this. Where is it? Down in my heart. Where? Where? In my bank account? No, 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 no. It's down in my heart. Where? At the mall? No, no, no. Down in my heart. Oh, please tell me Jesus is in my heart so that it's not me having to... uh... Where? In relationship with that cute guy? No, 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 no. It's down in my heart. Where? In, 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 In my... In my um, career fulfillment, that's down in my heart. And I studied this out, and actually, um, this is this is a, a profound connection in the scriptures because in Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-seven, the Bible says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. All right, so Christ in me. Okay, good. That's what's in my heart. And we learned in Philippians 1 today that our joy is Jesus. Yes. Okay. With four minutes left for the sermon. Hi. Okay. Yes. Finally, the main point of the whole thing. I mean, here we are. I mean, seriously, we are 
90% done, more than 90% finished with the sermon. And we finally get to the real kicker, the real point that uh, J- Paul's joy is Jesus. So put it all together. My joy is Jesus. Right. And Jesus is in me. My joy is in Jesus and Jesus is in me. Why is my joy in Jesus though? What is the, what has he done? Yeah, keep in mind the biblical answer is died for our sins and he's come up with the, basically the Roman Catholic doctrine of infused grace stumbled upon that quite easily him Yo, I have this terrible habit when I lose something and I lose stuff all the time, I'll start freaking out. And and when I lose something, I'll start looking all around. Like if I lose my wallet, I'm like, oh my gosh, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Or like if I lose my notebook, I have a notebook where I keep all my thoughts, my journal thoughts. Oh my gosh, where's my where's my notebook? Where's my notebook? Does anybody see my notebook? Somebody get my notebook. Who moved my notebook? Or um, the other day we're at the airport. Where's my driver's license? Where's my driver's license? Oh my gosh, I can't get on the plane without my driver's license. And what makes it so embarrassing is that usually I'm, I'm holding it in my hand. I don't know why I do this over and over again, but I'm usually I'm holding it. I mean, the, the other day I, I was looking for my phone. Where's my iPhone? Where's my iPhone? Where's my iPhone? Somebody gets my iPhone. It's going to be terrible. Pastor, is that it in your pocket? No. <laughs> I'm holding it the whole time. I'm frantically looking all around for something that I'm holding all the time. So many people miss out on so much joy because they're frantically looking all around for something that was inside of them all the time. I really do hope that you are referring only to Christians. Uh, That's the point. We got a little confusion going on here. Uh. My joy is not determined by what happens to me, but what Christ is doing in me and through me. Father, release your joy now. All right. We're not going to listen to this. Uh the prayer i don't want to hear any more sappy music man giga mix bag mix bag i mean we heard the gospel in passing kind of well no we did hear it but uh, such a convoluted mess if he had stuck to the text and showed us how jesus was paul's joy notice i did that at the beginning of the sermon myself uh, that would have been a fantastic sermon, and there would have been some real, some really good meaty gospel in it, not just stuff kind of flying by. Ay, 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 folks, listen. Okay, joy is one of those things that if you're pursuing it, you'll never get it. If I were to command you, I command you to be joyful. That's the the you're not going to be joyful. Okay. Joy is a fruit of our salvation. Regardless of your sin and the consequences and the suffering that you might be experiencing in this life and the suffering, 
joy is one of those things that transcends circumstances, even transcends your sin. Because we Christians are in on we actually we have a we have this amazingly ridiculous good news that even though we're part of the inmates on this asylum known as planet earth and that we are as guilty as sin of breaking god's commandments we already know ahead of the day of judgment that the verdict regarding us is not guilty And the reason why we know that that verdict regarding us is not guilty is because Christ died for our sins. He propitiated God's wrath, took the punishment that we deserve, took it upon himself. God's justice is completely satisfied. And we are now adopted sons and daughters of God, sojourning in this life, called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. And so our joy is wrapped up in this good news of what Christ has done for us, knowing that the sufferings that we experience here in this life are not without meaning. In some ways, they're participations in the sufferings of Christ, especially if the reason for your suffering is because you are tenaciously clinging to Christ and the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by him for you on the cross. And that being the case, Christians as a byproduct of this good news, of this Jesus, of knowing him, of knowing that our sins are forgiven, are capable of having joy even in the worst of circumstances, even in the, in the midst of suffering. Because we know, we know that when we stand before God, we are we will not be put to shame. But because of Christ and what he has done for us, we will hear those amazing words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yeah. Even a wretched sinner like you, who is so undeserving... And deserves nothing but God's wrath and hell. God will say to you, because of what Christ has done for you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Tell me that that good news doesn't bring joy to your heart like it brings joy to mine. Well, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Don't turn off your iPod. Don't. you got to listen to this. We need a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith crew. And by signing up, it's a mere $6.95 a month. And by doing so, you ensure the longevity of this program as well as Pirate Christian Radio. And when you sign up, you get an email giving you directions to and access to our secret Pirate Christian Cove, where you can access our growing treasure trove of theological and doctrinal resources designed to help you go deeper in your understanding of Scripture, sound doctrine, and good theology. You can uh, join the Pirate Christian Radio crew. 
by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the Join Our Crew button. And if you'd like to donate a flat amount of money, or you know, you can do that a couple of ways by clicking on the donate button or uh, making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what do you think? What do you think? Do you have that joy, 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 joy down in your heart? Or do you have the happy, happy, joy, joy song running through your head? I apologize for that. <laughs> if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross, even for your sins. Amen. Amen.